0: Welcome to FO Podcasts. With me is Nasir Khilji, back by Popular Demand. Today we are going to discuss Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Now, when it comes to Zulfikar Ali Bhutto, there are two narratives. He was a controversial figure, so obviously you'd expect two narratives. And I will summarize them very crudely. We, We will, of course, add nuance later in the podcast. So, what are the two narratives? Well, narrative one. Putto as a villain. Narrative two, Putto as a savior. So what are the pillars on which um, his reputation as a, as a villain rests? There are four reasons one ascribes to him being a villain. Number one, he decimated the economy. Number two, he played a big role in the creation of Bangladesh how East Pakistan broke away from Pakistan and became Bangladesh. Bhutto also played a role in the 1965 war, that's reason three. And reason four, uh, he was a precursor to Ziaul Haq, because he declared Ahmadis to be non-Muslims. So that's the narrative of Bhutto as a villain. The narrative of Bhutto as a savior. Well, number one, he gave uh, a constitution to Pakistan and established parliamentary democracy in Pakistan. Number two, he concluded very skillfully the Shimla Accord after the 1971 war, which led to the creation of Bangladesh. Number three, he had many progressive achievements, such as establishing labor rights. And number four, he used Islamic diplomacy and was the father of Pakistan's atom bomb. So, um, Nasir Khilji, let's get cracking. You are an encyclopedia on many things. Let's discuss <laughs> Bhutto with you today.
1: You know, uh, Atul, this is uh, yeah, uh, this is a very important and a very, as you said, controversial thing about Bhutto. Like you said, you know, whether he's a villain or he's a savior. I would say instead of black and white, there are a lot of shades of gray in here. Hmm. So let's just start from the beginning, if we were to say, uh, and for many years, uh, like I, I left Pakistan uh, when Bhutto was, at that time, foreign minister. In you, fact- You were so unhappy with him. <laughs> I wasn't, I wasn't really, <laughs> actually, you know, uh, like I, let me give you a little bit of my background, how it leads into Bhutto and stuff. I left Pakistan in 1970. By that time, Ayub Khan had been deposed and Yahya Khan, the military chief of army staff, had become the martial law administrator who had promised to have free elections. And it's a very good starting point there because that's where the whole role of Bhutto became very predominant. Mm-hmm. Prior to 1970, before I left, Bhutto had served as foreign minister and a minister for over 10 years uh, in Ayub Khan's uh, government, in many capacities, yeah. but the latest one was as a foreign minister.
0: Correct. I mean, many have accused him of being uh, the military's lackey. He was Ayub Khan's lackey, and then after that, he was Yahya Khan's creature. Uh, essentially, uh,
1: prior to, uh, I would say, before the deposition of Ayub Khan, when the, Ayub Khan was the first military. Uh, Chief of army staff who took over the country, who had a revolution, who took over the country. So at that time, the role of the military was not very well established in Pakistan. So the civilian bureaucracy joined hands with the military and essentially they ended up ruling the country for a good 11 years. So Bhutto, being from a very influential land owning uh, family in Sindh, uh, an educated guy, he joined as most. Uh, educated and uh, well uh, rich people, they all joined with the ruling elite. so he was part of the ruling elite and he condoned in fact he benefited by being in the uh, in this uh, whole coterie of the military establishment along the way when he was foreign minister, there was the sixty five war with India. That is another one of those things where Bhutto's role was very crucial he in a way influenced the Yukon, he was foreign minister. So he influenced the Yukon to really infiltrate Kashmir and he assured him that Pakistan would win uh, and take over Kashmir uh, um, uh, uh, by uh, starting an operation called Operation Gibraltar. Essentially that didn't succeed because the Indians got wise to it. And eventually they attacked, opened up another front on West Pakistan, and eventually there was a stalemate. Yeah,
0: so uh, Pakistan went for the head, and the Indians went for the throat. The Indians uh, focused their forces on Lahore, your city.
1: Exactly. You know, like Indians were so confident because most of the military was concentrated in taking Kashmir that uh, Lahore was very vulnerable. And in fact, it was, as we have to keep in mind, Lahore is about 15 or 20 miles from the border. Uh, it's a so, stone's throw away. It's totally, you know, like it's very near Amritsar. So essentially the generals were boasting that they would be having dinner at the Lahore Jamkana by the time the day was over. So, you know, there it, it, there were some uh, military uh, officers, uh, Pakistani military divisions that saved the day. And, uh, and, you know, there was a stalemate. So India was unable to take over Lahore. But the fact of the matter is, Aftermath of that, uh, you know, there was this uh, a peace conference organized by USSR Russia in Tashkent. In Tashkent, uh, where basically the main, I think, uh, you know, like uh, uh, the Prime Minister of India was uh, Lal Bahadur Shastri, exactly, and uh, the President Ayub Khan, accompanied by the Foreign Minister uh, Bhutto, they negotiated a deal. Essentially, it was going back to where they had started, you know, like uh, going back to the line of control.
0: Status quo ante. So it,
1: was, so it was a status quo ante. Neither side got whatever they wanted. So it was exactly where the whole adventure Pakistan had started. It went back to where it was. Bhutto at that time, I think his role is more of a villain because after he the agreement was signed, and uh, Bhutto came back, he in a way let it be known and Pakistan was very disappointed because we have to keep in mind, I don't know about India. Fundamentally, the media at that time was very well controlled uh, by, the, by the government. So the, 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 the population only heard what the government wanted the people to
0: hear India at that time was actually quite free because Lal Bahadur Shastri was a man of humble roots. He actually died in Tashkent and to this day, there are conspiracy conspiracy theories that, oh, the KGB killed him or the CIA killed him. But the point is, because Lal Bahadur Shastri had risen basically from the grassroots to succeed Nehru, we did not have an overarching control at the center, so the Indian media at that time was very free. And there was great mourning when Shastri died because he was fundamentally a very decent
1: man. He was a very, very decent man. In fact, there's a very interesting story. I don't know how far it's true, but the day the agreement, the and decla- Declaration was signed, Between India and Pakistan, between Lal Bahadur Shastri and Ayub Khan, it says, you know, there is this uh, uh, very well known, uh, interesting story that when uh, Lal Bahadur Shastri died the same night, when the agreement was signed, night came and, you know, early morning, it was discovered that he had passed away. I think it was a heart attack or something. And an aide to Bhutto came to his, uh, you know, room. And he woke him up and he said, Sir, the bastard is dead. And Bhutto responded, which bastard? So essentially meaning, is it Shastri or is it Ayub Khan who has died? So essentially Bhutto, in a way, because the military had given a line and Bhutto also that Pakistan was winning the war and it was because of the USA and USSR that intervened and stop the war, that Pakistan was denied this victory. So this was that narrative. So clearly when they had this Tashkent Declaration, and you go back to ex ante, uh, this whole feeling in Pakistan was that they had been denied a victory by the USA, and a Yukon was a villain in that. And he had signed and he had gone along with the Tashkent Declaration. So Bhutto, at that time, I think, his opportunism got revealed. He, being a foreign minister, very much a signatory to the peace agreement, he let it be known that he was not happy with
0: the agreement. So basically he backstabbed Ayub Khan and threw him to the wolves.
1: Exactly, he started in a way a revolt against Ayub Khan. Ayub Khan had already been a military dictator for close to, you know, like uh, seven, eight years. Uh, Prior to that, and Ayubutu had very much been part of this uh, junta, and now in a way backstabbing him, started a movement uh, against Ayub Khan.
0: So So, hang on a minute. That reminds me of the narrative in Germany uh, pre-World War II, after Versailles, there was this narrative that, oh, we were betrayed uh, at the peace treaty by people who folded, otherwise we could have fought and had an honorable peace or even victory at, uh, at war. So in a way, Pakistan ended up with this feeling that, oh, if only we'd been allowed the punch up, we would have taken Kashmir and emerged victorious. And Bhutto was very much a demagogue, whipping up that sentiment.
1: Exactly, exactly. So essentially, as I pointed out, uh, since the Pakistani population was always given the government line and they were led to believe that they were le- uh, winning the war and that the, the, the victory had been denied and then that whole thing had been sealed in Tashkent, where it was just, a, you know, like a, a standoff. Uh, that uh, So there was this disillusionment and Bhutto took advantage of that and led people to believe that, uh, you know, Pakistan was denied a victory. So that was the genesis. So having started that whole movement against the Khan, he followed it up. Then he resigned his job as a foreign minister after the declaration was signed. So by the time he got back to Pakistan, he resigned his position as the foreign minister and that was the genesis of his opposition to the you regime. And he started a party called Pakistan's People's Party.
0: Which still exists. And uh, his grandson is now foreign minister of Pakistan.
1: Was foreign minister, but now they have uh, dissolved that cabinet ah, because they're okay, yes, awaiting suppose. elections.
0: Yeah, yes, That's true.
1: Which are, we don't know when they're gonna happen. <laughs> but you know, generally they're supposed to happen 90 days after this. So that basically started Bhutto Political career in a way. So, following that, uh, Bhutto, with his People's Party and opposition to the Ayub regime, was responsible for toppling Ayub Khan, and then another military dictator took over, Yahya Khan, uh, who promised to have elections within, you know, like within the year, uh, and essentially that set the stage for elections, and then what happened subsequently in Bangladesh and the role of Bhutto.
0: Brilliant. So we have established that in 1965, he was definitely a villain. And now let's examine his role in 1971. So what is happening before this whole 1971 war breaks out? Okay, great.
1: So now in 1969, Uh, When the Yaya Khan takes over from a Khan, promising to have elections within the year, sure enough, elections are held in 1970. Essentially, as we know, there were two provinces at that time. One was East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, and West Pakistan, now Pakistan. So essentially, with two provinces out there, there were several parties uh, that were running for the elections that... Jaja Khan had promised, and Jaja Khan, to his credit, if anything he can claim credit for, he had the most fair elections in 1970, uh, where Bhutto in his People's Party uh, contested that election with several other parties from West Pakistan. And in East Pakistan, there were two major parties that ran for that election. One was um, uh, Mujibur Rahman, who was a leader of one particular party called the National Awami League. And then there was another party b- by a Molana called Molana Bashani. So essentially there were several parties in the running. There was free and fair elections held by this, mil- mil- uh, held by this military dictator, Yahya Khan. And it so emerged that in West Pakistan, bhutto's people's party emerged as a majority party in the west pakistan now the seats were equal although bangladesh had a larger majority of population compared to west pakistan or uh, yeah east pakistan bangladesh had more population higher uh, larger population than west pakistan uh, the seats were the same in both uh, Distributed the same way in East Pakistan and West Pakistan. In West Pakistan, although Bhutto was the majority leader, he won the most seats, but Mujib actually had the largest number of seats in the National Assembly, in the overall Assembly. Now, the way the plan was was that the Assembly, the National Assembly would meet, they would first of all formulate a constitution surprising as it may seem atul we arrive in 1970 71 and pakistan has never had a constitution
0: that that is absolutely staggering because uh, this whole myth about Muhammad ali jinnah as this phenomenal visionary leader who had a wish who had a great idea of pakistan and a vision for pakistan and an action plan for pakistan uh, is put to question because how can a country meander from 1947 to say 1970 with no constitution?
1: Yeah, they had a combination of things, but they never really had an established parliamentary constitution. So one of the tasks given to the newly elected National Assembly was to formulate a constitution within 120 days, then basically elect a prime minister, uh, agree on the constitution, and if they failed to do so, the National Assembly would be dissolved, and then there'd be another elections again to re-elect the National Assembly. So that was the plan. Now, according to the results of the the election, Mujib Rahman was the Mujib Rahman's party was the clear majority in the National Assembly. So, in in fact, he should have been called to form a government. Now, the problem is that. East Pakistan and West Pakistan.
0: Sorry, hang on a minute. Yeah. So you just said they had roughly the same seats. Now you're saying that Mujibur Rahman's party had more seats than uh, than Puto's. I'm sorry. Party. Uh, yeah,
1: uh, I may have been misunderstood. Yeah. The point I was trying to make is that the seats allotted for West Pakistan in National Assembly and the seats allotted. For East
0: Pakistan in the National Assembly were equal. Were roughly equal, but Mujibur won a thumping majority in, in East, Pakistan, East Pakistan, and of course Bhutto, Bhutto came up with a majority, came uh, won a majority in West Pakistan, Pakistan. But Mujibur had more seats than Zulfikar. Exactly. And so basically, he should have been Prime Minister, and his party should have been the dominant party at the National Assembly.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Some. Because, you know, in West Pakistan, there were several parties. So the seats in West Pakistan were split among a lot of parties, and Bhutto was a majority among the West Pakistani contenders.
0: But not so, as big a majority as Mujibur yeah. in East Pakistan, hence the majority.
1: Exactly. Now, there, there is a very separate topic that can be the subject of a different podcast, or it may have been covered elsewhere, is the whole... Uh, you know, trouble between East Pakistan and West Pakistan and misgivings that had already begun when Pakistan came into being.
0: Correct. Uh, That's a separate
1: That's a big issue. That's a can of worms. (laughs) It's a big can of worms. But the fact of the matter is that over 1947 till 1970, West Pakistan got preference in terms of economic development funds, it had all its, uh, the, the, the rulers of the country were West Pakistanis, uh, the majority of the military was West Pakistani. So the Bangladesh, although it was a more populous province, they felt that they had been discriminated against by the West Pakistanis.
0: Correct. And if I may add two quick uh, points that Bangladeshis often make, and they often say that there was uh, racism against them because they were darker skinned, and two, they say that uh, Urdu was imposed upon them. In fact, there are great songs about about uh, Bangladeshis uh, uh, priding Bangla and never forgetting their national language, Bangla. So b- both, uh, shall we say, color, skin color and language politics are important here.
1: Absolutely, you know, language, culture, East Pakistan and West Pakistan were totally different countries. The only thing that united them was a religion. Other than that, they had ethnically different, language different, cultural different, and they were 1,000 miles apart. They were not even contiguous, their lands, and they were separated by India, of course. And they had misgivings that had piled up from 1947 onwards. So given the fact that the elections, Mujibur Rahman, a leader of a party from East Pakistan, had won the majority in the National Assembly, they were hoping that this time they would get their fair, whatever they were entitled to, and the prime minister would be a Bengali. Well, unfortunately, and that's the the, the real issue, that the West Pakistanis, Yaja Khan, who was the president, was a West Pakistani? The military was mostly from West Pakistan. They did not want. There were a number of reasons they didn't want Mujibur Rahman to become president or prime minister. I'm sorry. One was that Mujibur Rahman had always maintained that if he became prime minister, he would basically make sure that East Pakistan and West Pakistan would become a very loose federation. They would not really be like a like a Uh, a central, uh, like a one unified nation, where it would become more of a like a federation of two different nations. So clearly this was unacceptable to the West Pakistanis for economic reasons, because Bangladesh was a source of, of huge foreign exchange earnings. So, so that was unacceptable to, to the West Pakistani lot. But Mujibur Rahman's agenda was, and he had put it in his platform, that uh, Bangladesh would become a separate, uh, very independent kind of country compared to, uh, you know, West Pakistan.
0: So a vision of a federal state with power residing in the respective uh, parts of the countries.
1: Exactly. So essentially, before, so basically, Mujibur Rahman was waiting to be called to become Prime Minister, and he was waiting for the National Assembly uh, to be called to convene, to set up a constitution, to have him sworn in as the Prime Minister, whereas Yaya Khan was waiting, and he wanted assurance from Mujibur Rahman that he would not pursue that particular agenda. At the same time, as Yaya Khan did, to his credit, announce the date for uh, the National Assembly meeting, but then Bhutto basically said that he would not go to the meeting because he did not feel that uh, he could agree uh, to Mujibur Rahman becoming uh, prime minister of uh, total Pakistan, and he basically, uh, you know, didn't want to go to the to the meetings.
0: So uh, basically, he's through um, a spanner in the works, a spoke in the wheel. Exactly
1: and i think that is the villain part of the whole thing he in fact because of his refusal to go to the national assembly and th- he also threatened other uh, you know people who had won elections other parties from the west pakistani he threatened that he would break their legs if they ever went to the national assembly charming Exactly, <laughs> so that led now. Yahya Khan was already pre-Yahya Khan had his own agenda. He wanted, no matter who became the prime minister, he wanted to stay on as president. So he wanted assurance from Mujibur Rahman that he stay on as president if Mujibur Rahman was to take over as prime minister. Mujibur Rahman essentially felt that he, there was no reason for him to, to, to uh, basically commit to anything, he had been legally elected and he would make up his own mind who he would make president eventually. So given this kind of stalemate, uh, I think at that time, given the military, given the sentiment against uh, Mujibur Rahman on West Pakistan, given that the military was mostly West Pakistani, at that time, I think it was determined and given Bhutto's opposition to going to meet or attend the National Assembly. So they all got together and in a way, I think it was decided at that time that uh, they would try to have a a compromise with Mujibur Rahman and if he did not agree, uh, then basically they would uh, take over East Pakistan. They would basically take over militarily and force him to agree.
0: I see. So that brings us nicely on to the takeover of East Pakistan. We won't go into great detail because that is the subject of many books, many podcasts. Um, The Pakistani military was brutal. There were human rights excesses. Uh, There was, of course, the blood telegram from an American diplomat back home. Uh, And and India intervened uh, after a refugee crisis and, and India won the 1971 war and Bangladesh was formed. So Bhutto played uh, a villainous role there. And uh, this brings us on very neatly to the Shimlai court where he's given much credit. Uh, Part of the reason people see him as a savior is because of the Shimlai court. So why don't we talk about the more positive uh, impact uh, that he had on the country?
1: Agreed, let's go beyond 1971. Okay, so in 1971, uh, the West Pakistani military goes into Bangladesh. They commit atrocities. Uh, they they dis- a lot of uh, refugees from Bangladesh uh, take refuge in India. India uh, and Pakistan go to war. India liberates Bangladesh. Mujibur Rahman. Uh, so essentially, Bangladesh separates out, and Yahya Khan, who was president of Pakistan. Uh, at this debacle, who is now considered to have lost the war, essentially resigns and Bhutto takes over because he was the majority leader in West Pakistan anyway. So he takes over the mantle of the president and eventually he becomes uh, prime minister. Now the only problem, now the problem that remained after this Bangladesh uh, separation was that when India won the war, there were 93,000 uh, West Pakistani troops who had gone to Bangladesh to suppress the Bangladesh, uh, you know, uh, war of liberation. They basically became prisoners of war of India. So now they had to be in agreement to bring the people back home, to bring the soldiers back home, to bring the military back home. So there was the Shimla... Shimla Accords or a meeting yeah. between Did, Indira Gandhi and...
0: Uh, 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 and Zulfiqar Ali But uh, On the note of uh, those 93,000 prisoners of war, you were mentioning how they were a huge cost for India. And so for India as well, it was uh, essential that they got rid of them. We'll get into that in a second. But one interesting uh, fact most people don't know about is that uh, the Pakistani troops, um, I think at the time if i remember correctly from uh, indian veterans were getting uh, six eggs a day because of course they were supposed to be muslims and warlike and they needed more protein (laughs) and they also got meat on hoof which meant that they were given live goats not uh, already uh, carved up meat but live goats because then they would kill them uh, through halal, the proper slaughter. Okay, slaughter. Yeah, halal. it was a, actually quite a big expense on India. Yeah, ninety-three
1: thousand <laughs> soldiers being fed, according to the, and being treated by, according to the Geneva Convention. Yes, six eggs and meat on hoof. Of course, in a non-like <laughs> a, in a vegetarian country, uh, feeding you know like a, clearly it was an expense. So so both sides had some bargaining chips. And I think Bhutto and uh, uh, Indira Gandhi, at least hit it off fine. They did come to an agreement. Pakistan did agree to meet again with India. And they also committed that they would never, ever go to war with India. uh, And they would negotiate the status of Kashmir and other boundaries and any other conflicts that they had. Based on that, Bhutto became in a way a savior. Of uh, Pakistan, and he was able to redeem and get the people back. So that was like one big point for uh, Bhutto.
0: Clearly, S- so let's go. Let's go back to um, his reputation as a savior. Uh, the Shimla Accords. Uh, most uh, historians, and especially most analysts of international relations, um, would say, uh, were very well argued by Zulfikar. Um, he demonstrated. Uh, Cunning, uh, sophistication, and uh, slickness in um, promising, um, basically not going to war. So he exchanged ninety-three thousand troops for basically what ter- in uh, what turned out to be an empty promise.
1: Absolutely, you know, and you know we have to keep in mind that uh, if you com- compare Zulfikar Ali, like you mentioned, if you compare Zulfikar Ali Bhutto uh, to Indra Gandhi. You know, uh, like, again, you know, uh, I don't want to get into the sexual, you know, differences. Now, there of are
0: lots of rumors that, uh, you know, there, there, there was a little bit of frisson between the two.
1: Not, uh, <laughs> not that, but I mean, in terms of status of woman versus man. But, you know, we, we may want to talk about Buto's background a little bit. Buto, keep in mind that he was a very well-educated man. Yeah, uh, went and,
0: to uh, Berkeley and Oxford. Uh, started, I, I taught at one place, and i and I read uh, philosophy, politics, and economics at another place. Exactly.
1: He essentially started at uh, doing his undergrad for political science at University. First of all, he belonged to a very uh, rich and uh, you know elite family of uh, India, in fact. yeah, uh, like his father was a knight, Sir Shanwa Bhutto. So he came from a very well-known. Cindy family. Number two, he was very well-educated. Uh, he went to California, Southern California, and then- no, no, transferred... Northern
0: California, Berkeley. He went to University Sorry. of Berkeley.
1: He started in Southern California, University of Southern California, ah,
0: I didn't and know transferred that to Berkeley. Oh, I didn't know that. I yes. learned something new. Yes.
1: <laughs> like his two years, he transferred in sophomore year to Berkeley, finished off in political science, and from there, he moved to England, uh, and he went to Oxford to do his master's in political science. And then he did law after that. Yeah, And then, so given this background and he had been foreign minister. And he Correct. Was
0: pro- he, he had already negotiated at 1965. Exactly. He had a, a lot more experience in Indira Gandhi. He was obviously a smooth character. He had backstabbed many people along the way. Uh, he knew charm. Uh, in a way, very few people did. Uh, he exactly. was regarded very much as a ladies' man.
1: So, you know, so Bhutto had been trained. He had lived. He had practiced diplomacy. He was had been foreign minister. He was very articulate. Given all that, compared to Indira Gandhi, although she belonged to a very good family, but I think she was basically d- dominated by her father. Father, she became prime minister just uh, because of her father, not... In spite of him.
0: Correct. That's that's a very good point. And by the way, Indira Gandhi failed at Oxford. Indira Gandhi was known as Gungi Guria initially, which of course in our language means a dumb doll. Yeah. And although she was a very intelligent, powerful, and later charismatic woman, she was not well-educated. When, uh,
1: uh, when did she become prime minister? Uh, she
0: becomes uh, prime minister I- in the late 60s. Here we go, uh, basically,
1: so we are only talking about two, three years as Prime correct, Minister correct, correct. compared to a guy who had been in the government and a foreign minister and
0: uh, starting from like nineteen fifty eight That's correct, so there's a huge differential a huge in experience differential. and education, but and
1: education, and then you know its because they belong to elite families anyway. The Bhuttos and Indra Gandhi, uh,
0: they they spoke very cordially with each other. Anyway, they they were part of the same anglicised elite. Earlier uh, earlier in the day, exactly. we were discussing how yeah. Jinnah and Nehru, both of them, didn't speak Urdu or Hindi well. Both of them spoke English in a British accent. Yeah, and and Indra and uh, Indra Gandhi and Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. But part of the same anglicized elite, the same manners, the same accent in English, the same habits. Uh, exactly. So, so they felt quite at ease with so, each other. So they,
1: they, they were talking on the same terms. They got along fairly well. Uh, they had similar backgrounds. And, you know, keep in mind, the hope was that Bhutto would continue as prime minister and he'd be able to maybe continue a dialogue with India and eventually resolve the Kashmir problem. Unfortunately, uh, uh, maybe Bhutto didn't realize it. Uh, At that time, although he was with the military, lock, stock, and barrel, but he didn't realize that the military had its own agenda and was becoming a very powerful force in Pakistan. And it had a narrative which did not agree with with the way Bhutto looked at it
0: we'll, you know, we'll get to that later. We'll get so, to that later. But in 72, full marks to Bhutto, he did a jolly good job. So yeah. we can say that yes, he is in some ways a savior of Pakistan yeah. there.
1: So yeah. at that point, when we arrive in 72, we have the Shimla accords There is that hope that going forward, India and Pakistan will resolve their differences and things will become normal.
0: And he's got prisoners of war back. And he's, he's got Spanish. the prisoners
1: of war yeah. back. the the military is discredited anyway. So the civilians are a little more powerful than the military in Pakistan. So that Bhutto was a very powerful prime minister at that juncture and a very popular one.
0: Exactly, and he's managed uh, to wrest diplomatic victory from the jaws of defeat. Exactly. Now let's move on to another reason why many people think of him as a savior and that is Uh, the constitution exactly, and uh, setting the foundation for parliamentary democracy in Pakistan, which arguably still lasts to this day.
1: Exactly. So in a way, you know, this is very interesting. So now we have Zulif Ali Bhutto. Keep in mind, he was basically, his party had won some seats in the National Assembly, but because one province had split away, now his party was the majority party in the National Assembly, He became the prime minister. So he was actually president, so it became his lot to frame the constitution that was supposed to be made both by East Pakistan and West Pakistan in that election in uh, 1970. Correct. So in a way, that was what Jaja Khan had given the thing to the mandate to the National Assembly to formulate a constitution. So essentially this was a job that had been half finished. So Bhutto continued that job. So we cannot say that it was his initiative, but it was simply that now he was continuing what Yaja Khan had wanted the National Assembly to do do. in the first place.
0: But he finishes the job. He finishes the job. So we've got to give him credit for that. Exactly.
1: So within the National Assembly, although he had majority in the National Assembly, there were other parties too, So the constitution was unanimously uh, agreed by all the parties. So that was a huge credit to him. And from then he became a prime minister of a parliamentary democracy. So the Pakistan constitution from 73 continues to this day.
0: Excellent. So we can say um, if he was not the savior, he was certainly a key part in saving Pakistan. uh, Exactly. in terms of establishing parliamentary democracy, in terms of ruling back the military, and in terms of uh, having a constitution to to operate by.
1: Exactly.
0: So, all right, so good, he's done well there. But soon, in fact, 1973 is when the constitution comes into being, and in 1974, he declares uh, the Ahmadiyas to be non-Muslims. And for many, this is ghastly decision. This sets uh, in chain efficient um, nuclear reaction wherein Pakistan now uh, starts figuring out who's a Muslim and who's not a Muslim and uh, is no longer really even an open, tolerant and welcoming Muslim society anymore.
1: Actually, that's a, you know like a very uh, good juncture to talk a little bit about the background to this whole uh, a proclamation declaring that the Ahmadis were non-Muslims. This is an instant, but Butto, let's first face the fact that Bhutto was more of a secular kind of leader. He you was like a very to tolerant, scotch. <laughs> uh, he was a very secular, tolerant, yeah. Western educated, yeah. socialist type of person. Wine, women and song. Exactly. <laughs> and an elite, yeah. belonged to the elite problem with Pakistan uh, has always been, and has become even worse, is this whole vision th- that Pakistan has never been able to reconcile why it was created. So there is this, always this conflict between the Islamists and the secularists. So, most people believe in Pakistan that Pakistan was made for the Muslims. And given that it was a Muslim state, it should, the charter should be Islamic, where all the things that are banned in Islam should not exist in Pakistan. Now, Bhutto being a secular, democratic, uh, enlightened uh, person, did not have, he felt the, the, the will of the people who were mostly religious and Islamist and basically uneducated. And in the sway of mullahs, he could not go against it. So he was not really a leader that way in basically saying, uh, getting credibility
0: and telling his people to lay off this whole question about Mm. So, So he was a politician who followed the mob Exactly. That is the essence of your argument. Yeah. He was not a leader who pointed the promised land and led his people there.
1: Exactly. He, although he had a big following, but keep in mind that Pakistan uh, as, uh, essentially uh, is uh, predominantly a very uneducated country in the sway of the mullahs, mm. and you know the teachings uh, by the mullahs to their people.
0: And and after 1947, it had become more so because the dominant ideology was that this was a Muslim Muslim country and and Pakistan defined itself as not India. So it looked to Turkey, it looked to Iran, it looked to uh, the Arab world for its roots. In fact, you know, this was the second shoe dropping, the Ahmadiyya
1: thing. Mm-hmm. The first thing, because the mullahs, the the Malvis, have a big following in Pakistan. They've always had a big following. So one of the big criticism of Bhutto, the mullahs didn't like Bhutto to begin with. The Islamists, the Islamist parties, because they thought he was basically uh, like a, a non-Islamic kind of character. Uh, didn't believe in the guy. Although Bhutto had his own following among the younger student. Uh, population, he realized that in order to coexist and become more popular among the masses, he had to g- make some allowances to the mullah element. So one of the big criticism against Bhutto was that he was, like you mentioned, he drank alcohol. That he, you know, he, was a, uh, uh, he, he loved his courts and all that. So essentially the first thing that he did because Pakistan had legal sales of alcohol, like you know, there was no ban of liquor in Pakistan while when he started. So, in order to prove his Islamic credentials, the first step he made to appease this Islamist element was that he declared alcohol illegal.
0: Ooh, la, la! So he created a complete black economy of alcohol that lasts to this day. Exactly. Because uh, both Sindhis and yeah. non Punjabis and, and especially Punjabis have yeah. re, uh, have the reputation of uh, drinking like a fish exactly. or drinking like fishes. Yeah.
1: So him being a politician, seeing which way the wind was blowing, he appeased the Mullah element, the Islamist element, by first declaring... And you know, getting credibility among the masses because he was representing supposedly the poor people, who were mostly predominantly fundamentalists in Islam. So he declared that alcohol was illegal and sales of alcohol to Muslims in Pakistan were illegal. So once the mullah element got emboldened, that this guy, you know, the one who had dropped, then they started insisting. That he should also declare the Ahmadis, who were actually you know the part of the rich elite in Pakistan
0: and uh, many of them had uh, set up Pakistan they were true believers in exactly fact, uh, they were the great soldiers of Pakistan yeah
1: so that was the next element he had to appease the the crowd the masses and he was forced to declare, That the Ahmadis were
0: non-Muslims. I see. So he certainly ends up being a villain here because he may not have wanted to do so but he buckled under popular pressure and mullah pressure to go along with both these decisions. First uh, making making alcohol sales illegal and then Second, declaring Ahmadis to be non-Muslims.
1: I disagree with you when you talk about being villain. (laughs) Just because you declare that Ahmadis are non-Muslims doesn't make you a villain. In what dictionary? I do not say. (laughs) Or that if you declare alcohol, (laughs) if you ban alcohol, that doesn't make you a villain. Fair enough okay it it may make you a villain in people like in the Western liberal democracies yes yes where you talk about secularism yes. and stuff but when you are think about Modi okay. would you consider Modi as a villain when he follows the crowd
0: so so that's a separate uh, so the, uh, podcast but, so essentially yeah, he but was, if 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 uh, Modi was to declare Jains or any community, or, or Sikhs, or whatever, as non-Indian, then yes, he would be a villain. But so look the at the way he's behaving against so, the Muslims. So if he is if following discriminatory policies, especially if that is enshrined in law, then of course he would be a villain. But even against Muslims in India, as yet there has been no legal measure declaring them to be non-citizens or, for that matter, taking away any of their rights. Exactly. Now, there have been sort of there has been rhetoric. But there's a difference between rhetoric and institutionalizing it in law. So that is where I blame Bhutto.
1: No, but we should not blame, you know, okay. Mm. I find myself in a very strange position trying to defend Bhutto, although I'm not a very uh, Bhutto fan. (laughs) But let me just clarify this issue about the Ahmadis. I think it's very good that you bring this up. It's not that Bhutto declared Ahmadis Mm. as non-Muslims. It's actually an amendment to the constitution. It's law. Mm -hmm. It was voted by the National Assembly.
0: Ah, so this is a very good point you're making, because we cannot blame Bhutto entirely because it was voted upon by a number of politicians and that entire entire gang that brought the amendment is to blame, because now they are creating a discriminatory state.
1: You may call it that. You're right. In, In a broader sense, you may be able to say that, but Pakistan as a state in its constitution has an amendment. I think it's the second or the third amendment that declares Ahmadis as non-Muslims. Now let's be just fair. This is not discriminatory either. It basically is like, you know, if you are a Hindu in Pakistan, Mm -hmm. you still have rights as a citizen of Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you are an Ahmadi, you're still a Pakistani. Mm-hmm. It's in not fact, that you're declared non-Pakistani. So. In fact, it, the
0: father of the nuclear bomb uh, was an Amadi. Amadi,
1: yeah. exactly. And a, a citizen of Pakistan. So we should distinguish between the two, Got between it. Muslims, like, you know, a Christian is a Christian. He's not a Muslim. So he's a non-Muslim. Understood. Similarly, an Ahmadi, according to the constitution of Pakistan, in the amendment, uh, they consider Amadis to be non-Muslims, but they have full rights, equal rights as any other Pakistani would be, like a Christian. So consider an Amadi as being equivalent to a Christian or a Hindu, or a you know a, a Parsi in Pakistan.
0: Understood. So let's move on yeah. uh, from this. And know, I didn't
1: want to defend it. No, no, no. But in a way, it has <laughs> clarified in my mind that the, this issue of Amadi labeling it or blaming it on Bhutto is a non-issue. Got really. it.
0: So we will we will we'll hold judgment there. We've moved on from there. Let us talk about the positives, since we are on the positives. Uh, what about his progressive achievements, such as labor rights?
1: Bhutto's economic policies had two aspects to them. Now that you bring up labor rights, we have to talk about his uh, economic policies holistically. Brilliant. That is great. Exactly. Yeah. And basically, there are two aspects to this. Bhutto, by his own, I think, uh, philosophy, his thinking, the way it had evolved over time, his education, his uh, role as a foreign minister, his dealings with China, dealings with USSR, had in a way progressed into becoming more
0: like a socialist. So in that, he was very much like Indira Gandhi. Indira was extremely socialist. In fact, she amended the constitution and declared India to be a socialist country. In fact, she inserted the words, uh, we were a sovereign democratic republic, and she inserted the words, sovereign, socialist, secular democratic republic.
1: Okay, great. Now, Bhutto, because of his you know, education and evolution, he was and his friendship with China, he had moved to the left of the scale. He was not an economist. He was not trained to be an economist. He was a political scientist and a lawyer. Yeah. Okay. His uh, uh, fountainhead of people who were advising him was in fact is a very weird, uh, he was an engineer by the name of Dr. Mabasha Roussan who gave him this whole uh, like a blueprint of what a socialist country in Pakistan would look like. Part of this socialism or this idea of Bhutto evolved f- from the days of Ayub Khan. Ayub Khan, on his hand, was a capitalist. Uh, again, Ayub Khan didn't know much about economics either. Ayub Khan was influenced by the Americans, especially the Harvard Advisory Group. Hmm who basically influenced him and moved Pakistan into a free market economy.
0: Uh, In fact, there was a time when Pakistan was industrializing, when Pakistan had manufacturing. And
1: it was all under the guidance of the uh, US academics, led by the Harvard Advisory Group. Yeah,
0: and and there was a time when people thought that Pakistan would be the industrial power in South Asia.
1: Exactly. Given that uh, when that started, Yuup Khan came in, he uh, went along with capitalism, economic capitalism, promoting uh, free market economies, uh, promoting families being set up and establishing banking, textiles. So eventually something like so- South Korea, a whole bunch of families became predominant in sectors of the economy, like in textiles, in banking. So the whole Pakistan, in a way, industrial sector, was owned by about 21 families.
0: Got it. So they were the Pakistani chebolts.
1: Exactly, exactly. Okay. So given that, that was the lay of the land when Bhutto came in. The the unrest against Ayub Khan was also uh, caused by this feeling of inequality. Between the workers and the capitalists, and that is a, a conflict and a tension that always exists in a capitalist country.
0: It even exists in the U.S. Of where course, you, it does. You and I are sitting.
1: Exactly, it does. And the government, to its credit, in fact, you know, it's again, we could talk about that at length, about at another time, there is a feeling in the U.S.A. right now that we are back in the Gilded Age. That you know the USA has actually uh, become more ine- unequal than it ever has been
0: in its history. Well, we'll, we'll touch upon inequality
1: so in another podcast. So that tension always exists, and Pakistan had that tension uh, when Ayub Khan was uh, you know overthrown. So Bhutto took advantage of that, and he basically promised that he would rectify it. And influenced by uh, socialist people. He did embark on a program where basically he nationalized basic and small industries. In fact, he nationalized banking. He nationalized all the basic industries like iron, steel, carbon. He uh, industrialized uh, small industries also. So he went extreme and I think he was approaching, he was moving towards the Chinese kind of model.
0: Let me stop you for just a minute. This is exactly what Indira Gandhi did. Exactly. There you go. So, I mean, in a way, he was following Indira Gandhi to the letter when it came to economic policy.
1: Again, to clarify here, you're right. But Indira Gandhi was
0: following up on, on her father's Socialism yes, Indira Gandhi also. went more extreme and it, we- So w- the socialism had already, already started. started. So she didn't begin it, but she lurched leftwards. Exactly. And she was extremely close to the Soviet Union. Exactly. She was extremely influenced by the Soviets. Now, of course, reports have emerged over the years how the Soviets had infiltrated every aspect of Indian life from bureaucracy to academia and media. So India was in a very different situation what is ironic is that Pakistan was a US ally and yet its economics turned so socialist.
1: Because of Bhutto. Because Bhutto had been foreign minister, he had established these close ties oh. with China. He had been influenced by China. Uh, they had a number of agreements. So essentially, being influenced by China, Bhutto was actually the starter of socialism in Pakistan. And uh, so by nationalizing industry. So that was one aspect of it.
0: Good. But uh, let's quickly go, what does that actually mean? Because unlike, uh, say, the Soviet Union, where engineers ran factories both in India and Pakistan, the inheritors of the Indian Civil Service, which is the Pakistan Administrative Service, the PAS, and the Indian Administrative Service, the IAS, they ended up as the masters of the universe. They made all the economic decisions despite not having any domain expertise.
1: Actually, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. In fact, you know, after the nationalization, the question was who was gonna run these factories and these industries? So now the, the, the problem is that you always have this ubiquitous Pakistan administrative services. That's another issue that we can discuss sometime. We will, this, we uh, will. you know, this whole evolution of the, the civil service in Pakistan and India even that is one of the biggest structural problems that Pakistan faces in economics is that uh, there are people who run, who make, dis- who decision makers are not specialists but generalists, mm-hmm. and you know we live in a specialized world where you need specialists for industry
0: exactly and in we've, and we we entrepreneurs exactly. and, you know we we've always uh, taken your personal example you retired as a senior economist in the US treasury you spent so many years in the US government exactly and this is not a position you could have attained in Pakistan in Pakistan, some Pakistan administrative service exactly. officer would be in charge of what you did here.
1: Exactly, they would never have made me like a, you know, a senior economy
0: Because Pakistani, uh, the US civil
1: service is dominated by specialism and open competition throughout and specialization. Pakistan and India, they're dominated by generalists and uh, it's not open competition.
0: It is open competition at entry when you're 25 or 20, 25, 28, whatever, in your 20s. And after that, you just coast, you're the lord and master of the universe. Yeah,
1: there is no such thing as uh, like a a lateral entry later in life. You can't come from the private sector to the uh, civil sector, uh, public sector in midlife. If you don't join at entry level, you never join. You can't join. Anyway, so that's a separate issue. So one aspect was the nationalization of industry. The second aspect, as you point out, was uh, labor rights, you know, uh, rationalizing labor laws. On on the labor law front, again, I think both of these are anti-capitalistic. So although you may be using the markets to to provide labor rights. I consider USA, the role of the unions in the USA, okay? I don't think, uh, although the government and the government in the USA, as well as uh, the the, the system has evolved in providing labor rights to to labor in, in the USA, there has been this tension between labor and the capitalist class
0: in the USA. Even in the US? Even in the US. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there, yeah. there has been tension in every society. There was tension yeah. um, in the UK, there was tension yeah. in Germany, and, and each society came up with its own solution. Most societies, exactly. therefore, have mixed economies.
1: So when you talk about giving labor rights and nationalizing industry, this is, in a way, a redundant thing. Because you, if, you, if you take over the industry, then you're going to distribute it to your people. The
0: workers have taken over the
1: means of production. Anyway, yeah, like China. Yeah,
0: absolutely, you're right. You're right. Because, so you're done. Uh, because they are all government employees now. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so we can't give him too much credit for labor rights. Yeah, yeah. But more importantly, this socialism, how did it help or hurt Pakistan? Because we've had some banker in London from the Pakistan People's Party defend um, Bhutto's socialism. And, what, yeah. and
1: what's your view? Like, oh, I, for, for many years, you know, I was so busy in America and doing my own thing. I never, although, and I, you know, like I've been trained in economics, I believe in free market economies. I have uh, seen how Pakistan has evolved after that nationalization. I can tell you point blank and the the, the failure of the USSR and the way China has evolved. Essentially, China is a capitalist economy, you know, for all practical purposes. And you know what they've done? China is an amazing product of how capitalism succeeds. Uh, Essentially, Mao was able to use his philosophy to train a a very well-organized labor force. And Deng Xiaoping was able to use that trained labor force to win capitalism at its game.
0: <laughs> so they've done a masterful job. Until Xi. Xi uh, Jinping isn't doing so well now. Well, actually,
1: <laughs> okay, that's another point. Yeah. <laughs> but still, China has progressed in market economics, not in socialism. Tremendously.
0: And and, and because they were able to uh, eliminate red tape, because you could just come and set up a factory and start production and not wait for 200 years to get a file cleared, not wait uh, uh, to basically start operations, uh, exactly. they, they became the factory of the world.
1: Exactly, exactly. So when you look back at Bhutto, I would blame Bhutto, as one of the reasons where you have Pakistan not emerging and doing really badly economically, one of the big factor is what Bhutto led in motion by nationalizing the industry. And uh, essentially it had never recovered. If he had led the 21 families, half of them were Amadis anyway. <laughs> if they had continued, Pakistan, I can tell you, would have been something like South
0: Korea right now. Aha, that's a tall claim. Now, let's go into- Well,
1: Keep in mind that uh, in the 60s, when Yukon was running the country, South India and Pakistan used to have higher exports than South
0: Korea. Ah, yes, most people forget that. Now, uh, why did nationalization fail, particularly in India and Pakistan? Well, part of the reason was because the administrative service, the PAS and the IAS ruined it. And part, the other is the profit motive. Exactly. Part of it is there was no incentive to work. Exi- that's the word. And incentive. Exactly. And part of it is also there was no penalty for failure. So yes. if you ran a factory poorly, you'd still be subsidized by the taxpayer. Exactly. There was no market discipline. Exactly. So basically, these nationalized industry, industries, these public sector units, became white elephant bleeding the taxpayer yes. and led to an extraordinary misallocation of capital exactly. and a low productivity economy.
1: And this has far reaching influences because you know, not only it's incentives, but it's also confidence in the economy. Mm-hmm. And that goes on for decades. You can't, once the Amadees, if they've been dispossessed of industry, how can you expect them to come back?
0: Yeah, they all went
1: to the UK. Yeah, or they moved to the USA. Exactly. Or they moved their capital and continue to live in Pakistan, because they were still Pakistani. <laughs> <laughs> We've established that. In fact, one of my best friends, uh, in fact, is in Ahmadi. Actually, two of my best friends, and they both live in
0: Pakistan. I see. Uh, well, I, I have a very dear Ahmadi friend in New York with whom I live, and his family is in London, which is where they have the big Ahmadi mosque. Oh, great. What's his name? Uh, Wasim Ahmed.
1: Okay, so you may have heard of Shanuwa's motors and she's on. Yes, yes, yes. That's uh, the owner of that is my friend.
0: Ah, okay.
1: And you know, so but anyway, the the fact of the matter is, if there's a, uh, Bhutto is a villain, there is no way you can rationalize that thing. Clearly he didn't understand the ramifications. At that time, keep in mind, we're talking 1973 when China and USSR were still going strong
0: yeah. and claiming that they were successful. Exactly. So he may not have been a villain in his intentions, but history has proved him to be a villain in the consequences of his actions. Exactly. And the road to hell is often paved with good intentions. Good intentions. So he's yes. certain, certainly you know, taken Pakistan to hell because economics is the fundamental yeah. uh, basis on which uh, any country prospers or basically uh, declines.
1: Exactly. So you have this leader or this prime minister. He nationalizes industry, and then he basically gives uh, all the fruits of industry to the labor. So that's not, that's a recipe for a disaster in the long run, and that has proved to be the case for Pakistan. It has never recovered. Now there are other factors for why Pakistan is not recovered. If you remember, we talked about it in a previous podcast that why Pakistan was still a basket case. But now, if we look back at Bhutto, the role of Bhutto in Pakistan, there are essentially, as you pointed, he's a savior and he's a villain. I would say that he's a, the villain side of the ledger outweighs the savior side.
0: Now, we, we haven't discussed one final thing that I mentioned at the introduction of the podcast, and that is Islamic diplomacy and the atom bomb. Does that make him more of a savior, more of a villain?
1: Okay, now that makes him more populist too. Clearly, as we pointed out again, Pakistan, uh, you know, um, it's its just, you, you're you familiar with Zogby International.
0: Yes, but please explain that okay. to our listeners.
1: Okay, Zogby, the family Zoghbi, they are very well known for doing international polling around the world. And they do, they call Zoghbi polls and they go to different countries and they ask questions. So they were the first in taking these surveys and polls. So one of the Zoghbis, I can't remember the guy's first name offhand, but I was at a, so he's very well known in taking these polls. And I would say that one of the things that distinguishes Pakistan from other Muslim states is that Pakistan basically feels responsible for all Muslims around the world compared to other. This is, and that's what
0: Zogbi even declared. Okay, despite the fact that they are not custodians to the holy sites, which yes. is Saudi Arabia, yes. despite the fact that their language is not Arabic, they yes. speak Punjabi or Sindhi, or the national language is Urdu, but no one speaks it well. Yes. <laughs> they exactly. still feel more Muslim uh, than, than uh, the, the Mecca, Exactly. According to Zoghbi,
1: and I I also, you know, I've seen this, like just to give you an idea, Pakistan feels equally about Palestine
0: and Kashmir. Oh, la la. That's that's interesting. I would have thought they would feel more about Kashmir. No.
1: Zoghbi International took a poll, asked the Pakistanis, which is more important for you, Palestinian issue or the, the Kashmir issue? They said it's both, both are equal. So they are willing to take up arms in Chechnya. They are willing to take up arms in China. They are willing to take up arms in Kashmir. They are willing to take up arms. So Pakistan, because it was made like a homeland of the Muslims. The pure land. Yeah,
0: it is like Israel.
1: Israel is that way. Yeah. yeah. It does feel for the entire. So so that is, so Bhutto basically took advantage of that and keep in mind, if you look at the Islamic world, let's just come fair square. Who are the leading, you're talking about Saudi Arabia. Yes, they are the custodians of the Holy Mosque, but what's the population of Saudi Arabia? It's not more than 40 million. Mm. And out of those 40 million, 15 million are expatriate, foreigners.
0: Wow, I didn't know that yes. it was such a high number. That's a,
1: Because most of the people working in
0: Saudi Arabia are foreigners.
1: no Saudi works.
0: (laughs) And you lived in Saudi Arabia. We can talk about that next
1: time. So keep that in mind. So custodian of the Holy Mosque uh, does not really have a military and is basically being defended by the USA right now, as you know.
0: Yes, but Turkey has dominated. Turkey has emerged. Yeah. And no, but Turkey, uh, historically, the Ottoman, uh, Ottoman Sultan was also the Khalifa was the case. That is
1: true, but you rightly mentioned Kamal Ataturk.
0: Correct, correct. That's true. They had a bit of a break in between. Because Kamala Ataturk yeah.
1: became secular. He actually, as you know, or maybe you don't know, the one of the things that Kamal Ataturk is very well known for, he loaded all these meddlesome priests, mullahs, into a ship and sank it. Oh, yes, I
0: do know him. I mean, he he, he was. Uh, a, that general, is the modern Turkey. Yeah, he, he was very much a, a it's fierce. It's only
1: Erdogan yes. who has
0: finally come. Yeah. Keep in mind. Fierce
1: secularist. Keep in mind, actually, you, you, it's a very good, important point. It has to be emphasized that Turkey with Kamal Ataturk all the way to Erdogan was had emerged something like Pakistan, it was a military state, a garrison state. The military was all powerful. When Erdogan was elected Hmm. as the the president, the prime minister, actually the military had had to give its blessing, had to give its blessing. But then what Erdogan has done over time, he has been able to
0: turn the table. Exactly. And
1: Turkey has emerged as a leading m-
0: Muslim voice. So let's go back to the time Zulfikar Ali Bhutto is in charge. Turkey is still secular. Saudi Arabia is, is, a, is uh, underpopulated. is nothing. And militarily inconsequential. Iran, Iran is, is under incon- the Shah. Under the Shah, inconsequential.
1: Like, well, keep in mind, Pakistan is well on its way to trying to develop an atomic bomb. It's got a very well-trained military which has a stalemate with India four times its size. Mm-hmm. So Pakistan's military was actually even called by the, by the Saudis to defend Saudi Arabia before the Americans took over that role. Mm-hmm. So Pakistan has always been, so given that role of Pakistan in helping Iran, in helping Saudi Arabia. Now, the other competitor against Pakistan was Egypt. Oh, yes. Jamal Abdul Nasser.
0: Yeah, but he was also secular. He had turned very secular. Jamal Abdul Nasser was also a socialist. Yes, yes.
1: He had turned secular. He was not trusted by the Islamic world. Yes. So Bhutto Bu- stepped in the void. So Pakistan under a Yukon was a very trusted Islamic state to begin with. Mm. What Bhutto did, and it's not Bhutto himself. Keep in mind that there were a combination of events that happened. If you remember, there was an uh, Arab Israeli war yeah. in 1973. Exactly. Just about the time when Bhutto became prime minister. Uh, the constitution here. Exactly. So here you have Bhutto becomes the prime minister of Pakistan. There's an Arab, you know, uh, Egyptian Israeli war. The Islamic world, Saudi Arabia, and others, they form OPEC, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. They boycott uh, the USA and Japan. They put an embargo of oil. So in other words, they are siding with Egypt against Israel because USA had taken sides with Israel. So what Bhutto does, he consolidates all that sentiment and brings all all of the, the, the Islamic world together and has a big conference
0: in Lahore. So he's uh, just taking his populism to the Muslim world. He's become a global Muslim populist. So here you have his banned liquor. He's made <laughs> Amadees,
1: non-Muslim, and then he invites all, and he had good relations. Yeah. Keep in mind with the Shah of Iran. He was foreign minister. His wife was uh, Persian speaking.
0: Oh yes, his, his wife was Persian. Uh, you know, Parsi, Iranian, on? I think.
1: Yep. Yes. So during Bhutto's time as foreign minister, Pakistan had very good relations with Iran, with the Shah of Iran. They even had a a organization called RCD, Mm -hmm. Regional uh, Cooperation and Development. Mm -hmm. And these are three countries, Turkey, Iran, and Pakistan. And they basically were committed to have a common market. Mm -hmm. So so essentially what Bhutto did, which was a very wise and astute thing, He jumped on the bandwagon and he organized a conference. Pakistan was respected because of its military, because of its dedication to Islam, and because of its sizable Muslim population to organize a big conference. And Mm -hmm. Saudis and Iran and other. And keep in mind, at that time, most of the engineers that would go to Saudi Arabia or to Iran, they were all Pakistanis.
0: So, in a sense, you could argue that if we take the Islamist point of view, which a lot of Pakistanis do, he could be said to be a savior here because he projected Pakistan globally, at least in the Muslim world. Pakistan was already
1: globally in the Muslim world. He consolidated that due to this whole,
0: uh, you know, uh, oil crisis. Okay, but I mean, there there are consequences that follow if you. Declare yourself to be such a Muslim country, then it's a problem for you to get out of that cycle of Islam. There, there, there's an underbelly to that story.
1: Exactly. So exactly. So that. So in terms of this international diplomacy in the Islamic world, Bhutto basically continued what Pakistan was doing under Ayub Khan. Because Bhutto was the foreign minister
0: and he was already the architect of foreign affairs. So let's talk about the atom bomb, because that is hugely significant. He gave that great speech that Pakistanis would eat grass for a thousand years, but they would have the bomb.
1: One of the you know, uh, great qualities of uh, Butto was, he was a great orator. He was a great,
0: uh, you know, like we know
1: what Hitler did with that oratory. So, uh, <laughs> so Butto- was a demagogue. So Butter was also got, we used to get carried away by demagoguery and speeches. And he would go, uh, say things like, oh, we are going to eat grass, but we're going to make an atomic bomb, you know, things like that. But he did initiate and start Pakistan building the atomic bomb. Now, one can consider that as a an achievement or uh, basically one of another problems why, why Pakistan has economic issues.
0: All right, so we don't know if he is a villain or a savior on this front. And uh, let's, um, you know- And those... Pakistan does have yeah. an atomic bomb at exactly. this point. exactly. Yes. Uh, Let's uh, examine one final thing. Even in his death, Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto remains divisive. Um, Well, some say he is a martyr who was a victim of judicial hanging, and others have lately argued that he got just desserts. Your thoughts?
1: Uh, Again, a very, very controversial issue. His supporters believe that Zulif Karali uh, was uh, judicially murdered. Uh, Essentially, it was uh, Ziaul Haq who had him hanged uh, on fabricated charges. So that's one version of a story, a narrative, that essentially what happened was that Bhutto was falsely accused of having uh, killed the father of a victim. So essentially, the intended victim was uh, this one of the uh, uh, members of the National Assembly, who was a vocal critic of uh, Bhutto, uh, and uh, it so happened that his father got killed in the shootout. You know, there was this uh, ambush of mm-hmm. this whole car, can and you in name the, killing... the
0: can you name the gentleman?
1: Yeah, uh, the 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 gentleman's name is Amadali Kasuri. Mm-hmm. Amadali Kasuri initially was a member of the People's Party. He was actually one of the founders of the People's Party. He went along with Bhutto, and he belonged to a, again. He was one a landlord, so he was an electable. He did get elected always, mm. <laughs> so he did get elected in Bhutto's National Assembly. Uh, but once Bhutto became came into power, uh, the uh, Amadali Kasuri, who was, uh, who had been with him in People's Party felt that Bhutto was becoming more of a tyrant and a dictator. Mm. So he stepped back from supporting him. And he basically won election as an independent and started becoming a vocal critic of Bhutto in the National Assembly. Mm -hmm. So what did Bhutto do? So now, according to, there are two versions to this story. One version is that Bhutto did nothing. He was irritated by this. And the Bhutto's followers followed up and tried to kill the guy, uh, and accidentally killed the father Mm -hmm. in that ambush. Mm -hmm. So that's one version that Bhutto had nothing to do with it. Uh, His supporters, Bhutto's supporters, uh, uh, were irritated by this critic of Bhutto, and they went ahead and they killed the guy.
0: So a bit like who will rid me of this meddlesome priest story? Yeah, exactly like Henry, (laughs) uh, Henry the
1: third, I think, and versus Beckett. The other version of the story, which the Supreme Court ruled was valid, was that uh, Butto basically ordered uh, the killing of his critic in the National Assembly, Ahmed Ali Kasuri, and he had a force, it was called the Federal Security Force that had been set up by, the, by Butto. Talking about similarities to uh, Hitler, as you know, Hitler started this uh, SSS. SS, yeah. SS, yeah. B- but when he came into power, he started FSF, a federal security force.
0: Mm-hmm. Slightly in different that, because it was part of the state. But uh, Hitler's organization to begin with was a private organization of the that Nazi Party. That was Nazi. Yeah, Nazi Party.
1: Yeah, okay. yeah. but when he came in, yeah, of course. So, you know, following the same, like you have a People's Party, socialism, and then follow it up with the FSF, independent of the military. Uh-huh. Because he was suspicious of the military to begin with. Yeah. So he had his own federal security so this force. this was basically his private army. It was his private army. The fact of the matter is that members of his private army killed the person. Ah, the plot the, thickens. Exactly. And there were four other people who were caught. The head of the federal security force testified that he was ordered by huh. So now you have two extremes. One extreme version of this, and keep in mind, the charges against Bhutto were filed by the son of the guy deceased. Hmm. So there are two stages to that process. While Bhutto was prime minister, his opponent's father was killed. His opponent, within 15 minutes of the killing, filed an fir which is called the first investigation report
0: first information report first
1: information report yes. where he basically claimed that it was Bhutto behind the killing mm. so it's not that it came later in his mind
0: got it got it so ziaul haq couldn't have possibly influenced that fir no way mm-hmm.
1: ziaul haq was no where in the picture mm-hmm. so the police first of all the police one didn't want to take the report Eventually, they did take the report, but then they basically declared that they, they, they were, it was not substantive. There was no evidence to substantiate this FIR.
0: Mm-hmm. So the case was dropped. Mm-hmm. Conveniently so. Conveniently dropped. Just like Shashi Tharoor and his wife. <laughs> there we go. So
1: then this case lapsed as long as Bhutto was the prime minister. When Zhaul Haq took over, overthrew Bhutto, Ahmed Ali Kasuri, whose father had been killed, who had filed the FIR report when his father was killed, again approached the, the, the session court to revive his case. I see. Independently of Ziaul Haq. Mm-hmm. But I must say, I must add that Zhaul Haq's administration also move forward with that
0: got it so in convenient the,
1: it was convenient
0: yeah it, it, so basically it was very convenient for Zia to use this issue and 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 uh, get rid of it. but
1: the case was legitimate yeah F-I-R had been filed before, had been thrown out by the administration which was Bhutto's administration and it was taken back up again by the uh, the the victim. <laughs> he did again urge the court to consider it, and that petition was joined by the government, the jawaharlal government. And then it went through the process. It went to the session court, to the high court, to the Supreme Court.
0: Understood. And
1: then they basically eventually, so they gave him due process all the way till the end. And the one side claims. That the Ziaul Hak administration kept influencing the judges. It was a kangaroo court. It was. Claimed. These were not only one kangaroo courts it's along the way. Along the way, and the other side, you know, the Amadali Kasuri people, whose father was killed, <laughs> claim, and he has again made podcasts recently, where he continues to uh, claim that uh, the sentence that was given to Butu was basically based on evidence. That was clear-cut.
0: Now, you mentioned one thing, and this is the afterthought, that both Kasuri and Bhutto were landowners. Now, my question to you, and final question, and we'll stop here, I promise, is to you is that how can a supposedly socialist country not do land reform? Because you nationalize industry and take all the industries away from the Ahmadiyas, but then both Kasuri and Bhutto are huge landlords.
1: Very good question, very good question. I wish I had mentioned that. Bhutto, to his credit, also had land reforms.
0: Aha, so we have to give him credit there. Yeah,
1: he did. But keep in mind, land reforms in Pakistan, Bhutto, actually, there were two sets of land reforms. The first one was set up by Ayub Khan. Hmm. He did land reforms, although landlords supported him, but he did land reforms. The second set was done by Bhutto, to his credit. Mm The problem with land reforms in Pakistan, they've not been successful.
0: So they, they tried to do it, but they were never implemented.
1: No, they are implemented, but they are ways that the landlord gets around it.
0: Okay. Promotion. So
1: for example,
0: mm-hmm.
1: like according to Bhutto, it was, you cannot own directly more than 150 acres of irrigated land and 300 acres of non-irrigated land. So what happens? So the father gives it to the kids
0: Ah, in their lifetime. Benami, Or not benami, different names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, your kids. Yeah, your kids. So So if
1: I'm a landlord and I own like a thousand acres, so basically what I do is I say, after I die and it goes to my children, I'll give it in my lifetime. Mm. I'll just give the name to them. I'm still running
0: the show. Mm. Interesting, so there were ways around it. So we have, after, An hour and more, uh, much more, nearly 90 minutes, uh, come to a fair degree of uh, understanding about Bhutto. He was uh, both, in some ways, a savior and, in some ways, a villain, on balance, on balance, sorry. Uh, He was more of a villain. And uh, when it comes to shades of grey, he occupies a darker shade of grey. We'll be back to discuss topics such as inequality, topics such as the Pakistan Administrative Service and Indian Administrative Service and much more. So from Nasir Khilji's wonderful home, it is bye for now. Thank you, Nasir. Sure, welcome. Thank you for having me.